This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. All right, podcast people, what's going on? How you doing? Hopefully all's well. Welcome to episode number, what episode are we at here? 109 of the Moranalytics podcast. Today is Tuesday, April 9th, 2019. It's Masters week, by the way. Love the Masters. I live to watch the Masters. For me, that's the real start of golf, so I'm very excited about that going on later this week. Anyway, thank you everyone out there, as always, for listening and for downloading. If you have not yet subscribed to the podcast, please go ahead and do so. Also, take a quick minute to rate and review the show. I know it doesn't seem like much, but I'm telling you, just take it one minute, hit in a subscribe button on your app, and rate in and review in the show. It really helps me grow this podcast tremendously, so I truly appreciate it. Coming up on the show today, you know what? I got a like a hodgepodge of shit going on the podcast today. Typically, I have a guest on, a male or female. We go on for 30, 40 minutes, maybe a full hour. Maybe I have a quick second segment in and call it a day. Not going to do that today. Instead, I got a bunch of shit going on. We're going to do, I got Aaron Quinn from Cover One. He's on my show a lot of Tuesdays. He's back again today. And we're going to do another Buffalo Bills four-round mock trap. We did one last week and it went over real well. Got a lot of interaction from fans on it. We're going to do that again. Not just making picks for the Bills, but we're going to highlight a bunch of scenarios, a bunch of players, and a bunch of positions, the way things may or may not fall. And it's based on what happens before and after Bills picks on a computer. Because we're not selecting the other 31 teams. We're only selecting the Buffalo Bills picks. And we have no control over what goes on before or after. So a bunch of things are going to come up. And I will give you one little teaser, so to speak, here. Ed Oliver's a guy that a lot of Buffalo Bills fans want at nine, including myself. But after our mock draft today and some discussions and the way things played out, I'll tell you this. If they don't get him at nine, if he goes before nine, or if they go in another direction, defensive end, offensive tackle, I think if you listen to this segment with Aaron today, you're going to be all right with not taking Ed Oliver at nine. I'm not saying you don't want him, but I'm just saying if you don't get him, you're going to be all right. So I got that coming up. Next up after Aaron, I got Chad D. Dominicis from Die by the Blade. Phil Housley got fired on Sunday, the Buffalo Sabres head coach. I don't want to, I was personally surprised, but a lot of people weren't. I'm pleasantly surprised that he got fired, but I thought for sure he'd be back for a third season. Anyway, I was planning on doing a big Buffalo Sabres season ending podcast this coming Friday. 
But with Phil gone, I figured I'd move it up. I contacted Chad, got him on pretty much no notice. Chad's a really good dude, a good blogger. And a lot of mainstream media are starting to pick up on him. I saw him in the studio for Tim Graham's show last week. He did a real good job. So I have him on the podcast for a second time because he's been on once before. I get his takes on Phil getting fired. The job that Jason Botterill's got ahead of him, constructing a better roster for whoever the next coach is. Because I'll tell you right now, Phil Housley was part of the problem, but he wasn't the entire problem. Ross are just not good enough. The secondary score, or the secondary scoring, I should say, was garbage. Pretty much like that all year. This team was way too top heavy. Botterill's got to find a way, whether it's bringing a couple guys up from Rochester, or maybe swinging a trade, signing a free agent or two. They got to find a way to get more balance on the other lines. We'll talk about that, who he thinks may be the next coach. Lots of ground to cover when it comes to the Buffalo Sabres with Chad. And then finally, after that, I have a WrestleMania 35 review. I watched all seven and a half hours of it on Sunday, which no matter how big of a wrestling fan you are, that's stressful, man. That's a grind right there. Long show, but I'll be honest with you, man. It was an epic show, too. I thought it was one of the best WrestleManias that I can remember, and I've seen every one of them. I've been to three of them myself personally. Lots of things I liked about it. I'm going to highlight that. We'll talk about a few of the things I didn't like. Good show today. Like I said, a hodgepodge of things, lots of moving parts, and I'm not going to waste any more time here at the top. Let's just get right down to it, and let's kick it off today with Aaron Quinn from Cover One. You done messed up, A.A. Ron! All right, I am joined by Aaron Quinn from Cover One, recurring guest. I have you on the Tuesday shows a lot, man. I like having you on. How you doing, buddy? What's going on? Yeah, man, I like starting my week this way. I'm not going to lie. It's a nice it's a nice start to things. Well, we did a mock draft last week, a Buffalo Bills four-round mock draft. And I'll tell you, it went over well. I got a lot of comments on Twitter, Facebook, emails, and shut. So I said, you know what? This is Let's just do it again. We only got, counting this week, let's see, we got two more before the actual draft. Plus, last week's mock draft was, I don't know, I think you would have to admit it too, was kind of unlikely. Quinn and Williams falling the nine. I just, that didn't sit well with me all week. I mean, it sat well with Buffalo Bills fans who want to see it, including myself, but I just still, I've been thinking about it all week. I don't see any way that happens. Do you? No, and I was in a chat earlier with a bunch of guys and they were ripping apart some other person's mock. And I said, guys, man, some of this is just kind of just speculative how things are going to go. And when we're doing these mocks, man, we can only take what the board gives us. And if it's hard to say, oh, we'll pass on Quinning because it's unrealistic. So I get what you're saying, though. It's hard to take it seriously. But hey, man, strange things have happened in the draft before. That is true. And the funny thing about mock drafts is we put this out. We did. We taped it last Monday night. And we were out on Tuesday morning. And I think, what, maybe two hours later, our mock draft went to shit because the Bills signed a guard. We drafted Lindstrom in the second round, and the Bills went out and they signed Spain, who's probably going to start there. Would you agree now, like a week yeah. later, that Lindstrom's not going to be the pick at 40 anymore? It was a good pick last week. I liked it a lot. You know, And clearly the Bills thought it was a need still because they went out and they signed another guard. I, well, here's what I'll tell you though, man. I think a lot, I'm excited about the Spain signing. I know I forgot we hadn't even talked about it yet. I'm excited, excited about that signing. It's only a one-year deal. 
So he might not be the guy here long term. They may be able to re-sign him. They're a lot of these line deals are all only all one-year deals, so they're only going to bring back a couple of these guys. I think guard's still on the table at 40 if it falls right. I don't think that a guy like Quentin Spain's a guy that you don't draft the future at that position because he got this guy. So it is a good indicator that they drafted him. And now all beans doing is send himself up for best player available. But if that best player available at 40 is a guard, I think they still run that card up. So you still think Lindstrom's in play at 40. I like that. I, I do. All right. Well, here's what we're going to do. Just like last week. And if you're listening at home, want to follow along me and Aaron, go to the draftnetwork.com. And we're going to run a simulated four round. Again, we're going to do four rounds because seven's just too much. I don't want to make up names or, or pick guys in the sixth round because I like their score. They got a pretty cool. It'll be like WrestleMania. We'll have people here all night. Yeah, exactly. So we'll do four rounds and the computer simulates the other 31 teams. We have no control what's picked in front of us and what's picked behind us. We only control the Buffalo Bills. So we're going to go there now. And again, it's the draftnetwork.com if you want to go there. By the way, before we get started, I'm looking at their top 10 big board as of right now. Quentin Williams is two. Here's a guy that we don't talk about, and maybe we will at nine. I have no idea, but Brian Burns is ranked pretty high. He's, I see that he's four on there. Furthermore, not one, two tight ends they have in the top 10. Noah Font at seven and TJ Hawkinson they have on the big board at eight. Now, again, this is draftnetwork.com. They're not by any means the end-all, be-all with draft rankings, who knows if they're the best? That's, you know, subjective, but that's interesting. Two tight ends and Ryan Burns in their top 10. Yeah, no, that that is interesting. Almost everyone I've talked to that does a big board has Hawkinson in the top 10. I think Fant is all over the place of the, you know, in that top 20 range. So I'm a, a little surprised to see him in that area. Burns is definitely a top 10 talent. I don't know that he's a top 10 talent for the Bills, uh, but that's something we could talk about if he's there when we get there. Well, let's get there. So we're going to click mock drafts, create a mock draft. Let's get it started right now. And we're going to select the Bills. Click next. Again, this is something that anyone could do at home. And real quick, I'm all uh, shameless plug. If you're going Absolutely. to do these mock drafts, uh, I love doing them. We do them all the time over a cover one Slack channel. All the followers do that. But one thing I think you're going to want to jump on is Jordan Reed's draft guide is coming out here. So uh, head over to cover one.net, grab Jordan Reed's draft guide. It's 10 bucks. The $10 goes to a charity. He'll get you ready so that you're a little bit more prepared to go into these mock drafts. It's 200 plus prospects. So if you're getting into those fifth to seventh round picks and you don't know who they are, grab his draft guide and it'll kind of update you on some of those guys deeper into the board that you may not be aware of here as we head into the draft. Yeah, that sounds like something that's literally tailor-made for me. Once yeah. I get past the first 25, 30, I'm like, oh, so what do you think? It's hard, man. It's, there's a lot of names, a lot of people. If, if it's not something that you're doing all the time or talking with the people that are doing it all the time, I don't follow all these guys. I just talk to people that are smarter than me that do. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. That's, I'm making a living doing my podcast doing that, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, all right. So here we go. Four rounds. We're going to have the... The draft pick speed is going to be fast. We're going to use the TDN predictive board and let's go start in the draft again, just like last week, I'll read the first eight to you and then we'll go from there. Uh, here we go. Nick Bosa goes number one, man. I just don't buy that. But again, it doesn't matter. Only we talked about this last week too. Only the first eight matter. It doesn't matter who goes where, you know what I mean? The bills are sure, picking yep. nine. So they got Nick Bosa, Josh Allen going two. Quinnen Williams, there he goes. We won't have to worry about that this week. He goes there three to the Jets. Devin White will go to the Raiders at four. Rashawn Gary goes to five. Tampa Bay. Kyler Murray goes to the Giants at six. There, yeah. yeah, it's got to be Murray. Well, again, 
Does it really matter? From the Bills' perspective, it won't. Jawan Taylor, number seven to Jacksonville, and Montez Sweat goes number eight to the Detroit Lions. This might be a little easier than last week. Before that, though, this brings up, I want to ask you this question. Let's just see the board played out a little differently. We were talking about guard. Let's talk about tackle for a second. Let's just say maybe DK Metcalf goes seven instead of Jawan Taylor. And despite all the additions to the Bills' offensive line, Juwan Taylor happens to be there at nine. Given the Bills tackle group right now, do you think that's a guy that's very much in play for the Bills at nine if he's there? I think there's three tackles in play at nine and uh, Andre Diller, Juwan Taylor and Jonah Williams. I think that it's very much a position that the Bills are looking at a lot of guys and not just first round guys. They're looking at second, late, later picks. I, I think they walk away from this draft with a tackle. So if it's truly their best player available at that position, I think that they do take that. I'd have a really tough time thinking they're every GM's going to say this was the top guy on our board, right? When they take him, it's always the best guy, the guy they always wanted. Uh, but I have a tough time believing that if Ed Oliver is sitting there, that he's not the best player available over Jawan Taylor or even Jonah Williams. So I'd have a tough time buying it, but I'd be okay with the pick itself. Sure. And this is one of the things that the bills are being praised for a lot by analysts out there is the, the free agent signings that they have added they do give them that option that they don't need to take a player, but that player could still be in play. Like for an example, and then we'll move on, at tackle, they signed Naseki, who's very capable of starting for a year or two at tackle. Mm-hmm. Adrian Waddle could be a good swing tackle. He could play on either side. He's got Super Bowl experience. But by no means do adding either of those guys exclude them from taking a Juwan Taylor or Hilliard or, or Williams. Absolutely yep. no. not. No, I agree with you. And that's what I've been saying all week is, yes, the line has gotten better on paper, but nothing that they've done outside of Mitch Morse uh, would prevent them from adding talent to that position. Deion Dawkins is still, he had a sophomore slump, so you don't know what he is. I don't think there's a guy outside of Morse that you say, we we don't want to improve those positions. I think they're comfortable going into the season if they aren't able to improve it, but I think you're always trying to improve. And especially a tackle with a franchise quarterback like Josh Allen, you're sitting here with maybe Ed Oliver on the board, a defensive end and a tackle. Tackle is just as important as any position that you're going to draft. Sure. Last week, now, Quinny Williams fell to the Bills at nine. That didn't happen this time. We also had a debate last week about Montez Sweat or Ed Oliver, if they were both there. That didn't happen. Montez Sweat went one pick ahead of the, um, he went to Detroit at eight. So now we do have Ed Oliver there and we have TJ Hawkinson there and Brian Burns there. Those are probably the three guys I would assume that the Bills most likely would entertain DK Metcalf is there at nine, but I've been saying this for weeks now after signing Beasley and Brown, I just don't see the bills taking a wide receiver that high in the draft. Not to say they won't take one early, but nine, I just feel like it's too high. Haskins and Drew Locke are there. The bills obviously don't want a quarterback. I only mentioned them because we talked about this last week too. That could prove to be ammunition. If they, if someone thinks Denver's locked in at Drew Locke at 10 and they want to leapfrog Denver, go to Buffalo at nine, That's always a possibility to move back. But for the sake of this mock, we can't move back. So where are we going with this pick? Yeah, I think you're right. Ideally, in a scenario like this where there's maybe multiple quarterbacks on the board or even Ed Oliver's in there as much as we'd like Ed Oliver to fall to us, uh, he might be the potential. If he's at nine, some team's sniffing around saying, look, he's he's fallen a little bit further than we thought. Let's just go up and get our guy. We saw the Bills do it last year with uh, Tremaine Edmonds. They came back up to get him. So, uh 
that's a possibility. I say just for the the sake of that this conversation and what we're talking about, another guy that I think is a little low on these boards, but I think the Bills would consider at this pick uh, is Andre Dillard, the offensive tackle at Washington State. I think they really like him a lot, uh, so he's a guy I'd consider. Also, a name on there probably is Christian Wilkins, who who tends right. to float around that area. I think he's more of a, a scenario trade back guy, but he if there's anyone that fits the process, it's it's him. So I think for this sake though. Brian Burns is a guy a lot of people are talking about because he's a freak athletically. I don't think he fits. Eric does a lot of these archetype uh, players of fits for the Bills based on their size, uh, production, all these things. And Burns does not seem to be a he'd be on the light side of everything that they've ever picked uh, for an edge position. So I don't see that as a fit. I, I think I would rock here with Ed Oliver and feel pretty comfortable. OK, I like that, too. If Wilkins and Dilliard could be a guy that maybe they move down 12, 13 in that area, one or those two guys would probably be there for them. But we're staying at nine and we're taking that Oliver. Real quick, before we move on, I've done a lot of reading up on him. And the one thing I seem to consistently read that, I don't know if it's cause for concern or not, but it's something to be aware of, is I read a lot that he's uh, his arm length is short. Is that, is. Is that a major concern for you? Uh, yeah, there's some concerns with that Oliver. I don't think he's at all the prospect that he was six months ago going into this process when everybody had him almost consensus number one, two pick up there with Bosa. And then, and then Quinn and Williams kind of took that over. My big, biggest concern isn't so much his arm length. It's when I watched him, I went back and watched him a few times to really get my own opinion. He gives up quite a few plays which uh he doesn't have that kind of motor you know the guys like Kyle Williams that we talk about and fall in love with so much that maybe make up for some of their physical ability with that motor I don't know that he has that and that extra gear but if the bills pick him then they're they're banking on being able to get the most out of him all right so we have picked at Oliver at nine the bills will be on the clock again at 40 as we arrive there I gotta tell you this uh draftnetwork.com board has been a little weird today because I'm seeing some things that I just do not see happening. Last week was Williams yeah. falling to the Bills at nine. Right now, this happened just two picks. Noah Font went before Buffalo, but he went just two picks before at 38 to Jacksonville. I don't think he's lasting the 38. I mean, you never know, but if he was around at 35, 36, I don't see any way the Bills don't go flying up that board to try and go yeah. and get him. That would be, they'd be crazy not to. It's just something that's sticking out at me. I don't know why he would be lasting until pick 38. That's kind of weird. We did a uh, a mock the other day uh, on our show, and Hakeem Butler was there like late second round, and we were doing trade ups, getting crazy. So we traded up to get Butler, and it is done again. It's going to happen. Things are crazy. Things are going to happen. Um, but yeah, I don't see Fant going that far. There's some rumblings. He had a tweet out today about uh, players and uh, being held accountable for things and people are taking that as oh maybe he's gonna fall because this tweet's controversial or whatever i I don't buy it i'd love it though i'd love i think he (laughs) whatever we can do to get him to fall to 40 i'm all about retweeting that all right so here we go at 40 here's what we have available drew lock by the way still on the board too that's not happening there's a couple go ahead I'm running one side by side with you just so I have an idea of some of the players here. And the perfect scenario, Drew Locke went to the Broncos. So having that, uh, you know, if somebody wanted him and we were sitting there and they knew the Broncos were going to take him, that that's the only real scenario right now I see for the Bills to trade back, which a lot of fans want. Yeah, I completely agree with you 100%. F40 on my mock here, we got a couple defensive tackles, which would, I mean, this would help the Bills because they took Ed Oliver. But Jerry Tillery would still be there in this mock. 
Jeffrey Simmons, who's basically a redshirt guy. We talked about him last weekend. Dexter Lawrence, another big guy from Clemson. They're all still on the board. We have Marquise Brown, wide receiver from Oklahoma. He's on the board. The guy you took last week at number 40, Chris Lindstrom, he's on the board. Uh, let's see, Greg Little's an offensive tackle that's on the board. And Irv Smith, who we talked about a lot last week, he's still on the board. He's ranked 50th overall on there. So those are the big names out there. There's Jonathan yeah. Abrams, a safety too. Where are you going with this pick? Well, there's one more guy I want to uh, mention here because he's not high on a lot of people's boards. Eric Turner uh, from Cover One just did a great breakdown on him today. If you get a chance, go read it. It's Caleb McGarry at uh, Washington. Uh, a lot of people have him low on boards. Eric does a great job of describing why other people have him low on boards because he's they're not seeing the way he's taught to be playing the game. He's taught by one of the offensive line coaches from the Peyton Manning Colts. And and he goes into great detail about it, but he's a guy that Eric is pretty high on as being a good technician. That might be an option here at 40 with some of these other offensive linemen, but being right here, knowing the needs of this team, I'd have a hard time passing on Irv Smith two mock drafts in a row. Yeah, I agree with you. It's uh, Chris Lindstrom is definitely intriguing. And you were 100% right a few minutes ago. They absolutely could go guard at any point of the draft. That doesn't stop them. But in this scenario, I'm still not sold completely on Tyler Croft. I think this is a good spot to take a tight end. So Irv Smith, we're going to go with him. Lock him in with round two. So we got Ed Oliver and Irv Smith Jr. over the first two rounds. I'm pretty sure Bills fans, if that plays out, that way we'll be pretty happy. The only thing on Irv Smith, I like him a lot. I really like his tape a lot. He can line up all over the place. You you think about those days of the New England two tight end set. Uh, He's kind of like that. I hate to say his name, but he's kind of like that Hernandez role where he can line up a little bit all over the place. He tested very poorly overall in RAS score, which is like an overall athletic score. There's a little bit of a red flag there for me for how poorly he tested with his size was mostly the issue. So, that's the only red flag for her for me. Other than that, that the tape doesn't lie. And I think he's good enough to be there in the second. All right. Well, we are here in the third. Now the bills are on the clock pick 74. And according to the board, the way it's played out top wide receiver on the board is Emmanuel hall from Missouri. We got Michael Dieter, a tackle from Wisconsin. And you got an edge guy, Jalen Ferguson from Louisiana tech. Amani hooker safety from Iowa. Is uh, Whiteside there? Arkeo Arkeo Whiteside. Yes, he is. He's there from Stanford. He's on the board. Um, we don't need a tight end because we just took one. I don't see them taking a corner at this spot. Top running back on the board, Daryl Henderson from Memphis is there. Rennell Wren is another guy that might be there around this time. I'm seeing him on my board uh, around there. He's another, but we already went into your defensive line. This right. is the thing about these mocks, though. It happens to us every time we run one. You think you got to take Ed Oliver because he's going to be there and available. And if you pass on him, you're not going to get a chance to. We just went two rounds where we could have gotten not right. Ed Oliver talent, but we could have gotten enough talent to fill in later if you run into a Simmons. I hope or, Bills fans are paying attention to that scenario, too. Don't go saying that we're not going to get a good DT if Ed Oliver's gone at nine or if the Bills pass on him. Because if it plays out right. like we've seen in this mock draft, rounds two and even three, there's a couple good guys there. 
that definitely can come in and make an impact day one. So uh, if I'm here, though, and I'm sitting here, I think uh, J.J. Arkega-Whiteside would have to be the pick. I think he still brings some of that size and jump ball ability, red zone threat ability that the Bills haven't uh, produced in, in the offseason through wide receiver. Again, I, I don't think that they have anyone on the team outside of Beasley and Brown that are just sure locks that they they can't improve on that position. And he's a big process fitting kind of guy. Uh, and I know Eric's really has really been high on his game and, and as a fit outside of that, I think you, you couldn't go wrong with with some of the other guys that are on the board, though. Um, but that would be my choice if I was if I was taken. Make it official. Cool. Let's go with him. J.J. Arkega, Whiteside from Stanford. There you go. All right. He's the pick at 74. The Bills are going on the clock twice now in round four. Their last two picks for the purpose of this mock draft anyway. You know, if there's one bold prediction, I don't even really think it's bold, to be honest with you, at this point. One prediction, if anyone says, you know what, Pat, what is your biggest prediction when it comes to the Buffalo Bills in this draft? I would say this. There is no chance in hell, no chance that the Bills are going to pick all five of their first picks where they're slotted to right now. Whether they go up, whether they go down, that I have no idea. But I am very, very confident that they're going to move around this draft board. My perfect scenario is walking away with five picks in the first three rounds. And that the my real favorite scenario would be trading back into the first round late and getting a, a Henry type of guy, Keem Butler, one of those big wide receivers back there, say Hawkinson or Fant fall kind of late like we saw in this draft. I'm all about going back up into the first to get one of those guys and then maybe trading back up into the third uh, again with some of those late picks or packaging some future things. And I'd love to walk away with five prospects in the first three rounds. I'll tell you what, to keep on that theme of defensive tackles being a good, this being a good draft for it. We're here in round four, pick 112. Colleen Sanders is a guy that we talked about last yeah. week from Western Illinois. He would be on the board in this scenario, as would Tryson Hill, who I've heard of from UCF, big guy. He's like 6'1", 330. I've heard about him a lot down here in Florida. He's on the board, too. So there's a lot of depth at the defensive tackle position. Daniel Wise is another name uh, that might be on the board here. He's on my board. Yep, uh, another here. guy I like. So, yeah, this position is is deep. And I'll tell you, the Bills fans are a little concerned they didn't address this in free agency. I think this is the reason they didn't address it in free agency. I think they feel confident that if something falls to them at nine, great. If not, they're going to be able to walk away with a guy that can come in and play. Yeah, I'll tell you, my, my walk away from this mock draft right now tonight is that I'm not going to feel quite as panicky if I don't get Ed Oliver at nine, if someone else takes him. Between Wilkinson in the first or plenty of guys in the second, third, or here even in the fourth, I'm not going to panic so much if we don't get Ed Oliver at nine. If Montez Sweat is there at nine and they like him on the edge, I'm going to be happy if they take him, especially being armed with this information and the way things are playing out right now, that's for sure. Yeah, I think there's only one right now pick that, is being speculated to the bills at nine that I'd be kind of upset with. And that's DK Metcalf. I, it's not anything about the player itself. It's about him at nine. If they took him late in the first round, sure. But at nine, I don't like it, but all the other things I've seen at nine, I'm totally comfortable with Not as a bills fan. I can't remember the last time where I was comfortable with that many different options. And that's a testament to being in the way he's been putting this team together. I'm really comfortable in saying that the bills are not taking a wide receiver at nine. It's one of the few positions where I feel really comfortable about that. So anyway, we're here in the fourth round. We've taken a wide receiver. We've taken a defensive tackle and we've taken a tight end. So we've addressed wide receiver and tight end as well as defensive tackle. 
I would be leaning initially towards running back here, but are we going to take a third straight? Are we going to use a third straight pick on an offensive skill player here? Uh, David Montgomery and Damian Harris are the two top running backs up there. Justin Hill or Justice Hill, I should say, from Oklahoma State. He's a burner. He's on the board. Devin Singletary. He's on the board. Another running back. Uh, we just took a wide receiver, so there's no way they're going to take two. No. Yeah, I think this is the area where you start really considering running back for me. Uh, typically, I like to take a running back in the first three rounds is my kind of rule of thumb, just because of based on production. Historically, Christian Page, one of our writers, put out a great article this today as well about production of running backs in their draft position. And after the first three rounds, there's a significant drop off. I do think in this scenario here and on my board, Miles Sanders is still there, who's a guy I would take. But I think it they would have a tough time passing up David Montgomery, not having anything really outside of Shady and Frank Gore for the future of this franchise at the running back position. And while I don't like the idea of taking three skill position players in a row, the board's kind of fallen to us this way. And it kind of is what it is in this scenario. And they've drafted or they've added in free agency so well that I think it, it gives them a little bit more flexibility to do things that are unconventional. All right. Well, Miles Sanders on the official board is not even available. So that would make, yes. I would pick making uh, David Montgomery to pick a little bit easier. I'm looking at Chris Trapasso from CBS sports, his player comparisons. I always like to look at those, even though they're yeah. rarely accurate. He's got James Conner as the NFL comparison for David Montgomery. And this state, this stage of the draft, I feel like that's a pretty good pick. No, I like that. Another guy I think that you start to think about around here, I've heard rumbling, what well, we've heard at Cover One, I've heard rumblings, a guy, Max Crosby, that they brought in, defensive end, uh, is starting to creep up into this area. He's not on a lot of big boards, but that he's kind of in that third, fourth round. So he might be a guy that they start targeting. Obviously, they haven't hit the end spot yet here. And then uh, Mike Edwards, um, uh, safety from Kentucky, would be a guy that yeah, they we spent took a lot of time. Week. Right. Yeah. And this is that kind of area, too. So if you didn't want to go skill position, three picks in a row or whatever. But I do think they have to walk out of here with a running back in this draft and they have to walk out with the tight end. So I'm not mad about that if I'm the Bills. All right. Let's pull the trigger. Then David Montgomery running back from from Iowa State. He's going to be the pick. And we're going to be on the clock one more time here. Pick uh, pick 131. It's coming up right now. And we're going to be there. All right, so we've gotten three skill position guys and a defensive tackle. What are we going to go here? Are we looking? Um, are we looking edge here? Well, what do we got on the board here? We got Joe Jackson right, from yeah. Miami, Wyatt Ray, Boston College, Malik Carney, North Carolina, Jalen Jelks, Oregon, Kyle Granderson, Wyoming. Those are really those. Uh, sometimes the value might not be there. I mean, these guys are ranked. Pretty low, at least on this board anyway, in terms of. uh, Yeah, and this is another great example, right? We took a running back to pick before and at least at the board I'm looking at, there's still some talent there. So it's, you know, you kind of pick and choose your poison of when you take something. Um, He's not on the board up here, but man, I think this would be a prime spot for. I, I know we took Edwards last time. I think this is a prime spot for him or Max Crosby. Um, I don't like any of the other names that we heard here. Um, this would still be a decent spot if they hadn't taken a wide receiver. You got Terry Godwin's on the board. Sills, uh, is on the board. Anthony Johnson out of Buffalo. So there's names that 
maybe you didn't have to take the three skill positions in a row and could have drafted something earlier. That's kind of the, the well, hard thing. Mike, Mike Edwards is there. We did take him last week. And if people didn't listen last week, but are tuning in this week, I like that pick in the fourth one. I think that's a good pick. Tell people listening a little bit about him who might not have heard the show last week. Yeah. So he was a guy at the senior bowl that the bills met with for over an hour, which is pretty substantial in those environments. So you know that the interest is there and that is real. We know that they like senior players. He's a senior out of Kentucky. He also played a lot of slot corner as well as safety. So he's got versatility that the bills are looking for. They've been kicking the tires on some slot cornerbacks in the draft process. So he might be able to be a guy that comes in and you give him a roster spot and he can really do multiple things. Cause obviously the needs not there at safety right away. Right. They have some even depth at safety, but it'd be nice to know that you have a guy that could come in and play in the slot if needed in a pinch. Taron Johnson obviously has a little bit of injury questions with him and his size and the way that he plays. So I think they would feel good about this type of pick, knowing that this is a guy that could come in and be a depth guy immediately, a special teams guy. And we're going to have to talk about it at some point. Jordan Poyer is not going to be here forever. Neither is Micah Hyde. While we like the safety position, those guys are going to want big contracts like Adrian Amos just got. He left Chicago, went to Green Bay and got a huge payday. I don't know that the Bills are going to really want to pay those guys what the market would be willing to pay guys that perform to the level that they do. So uh, I think now might be the time we start to address that future need at that position. All right. Well, we're going to pull the trigger on Mike Edwards. One last question, and then we're going to wrap this up. When we're talking to mock drafts or free agency, and not just us, I mean, any mock draft I've read or people I've listened to, one position that I never hear talked about is linebacker. Mm. I wonder, why do you think that is? I know the Bills have Tremaine Edmonds and Matt Milano, two really talented cornerstone types of linebackers on this team. But after that, you have Lorenzo Alexander, who's probably going into his last year. And just not pretty much nothing after that. If you're lucky, some decent depth at best. Why do you think the Bills are not more aggressively pursuing a linebacker? And listen, we could all be wrong because nobody knows what's going on in the Bills war room right now. They could be planning to take a linebacker much earlier than anyone anticipates. But don't you feel like that's just a position that literally nobody talks about with the Buffalo Bills? Yeah, I think there's some chances that they could take some guys real late and hope that they're special teams contributors and maybe then could develop into something. Obviously, Matt Milano developed uh, as a later uh, round guy. If they could hit that way again, I think they'd be happy and happy to do that if they keep their picks. I think the problem this year is free agency didn't really have a lot of the kind of guys that they want would want to be Lorenzo Alexander's replacement long term. And then this draft is not really full of it either. And there's some really good linebackers in this draft, but I don't think they're fits for the bills and they would have to be one of the top picks. So I I don't think they want to put that kind of investment into linebacker two drafts in a row. So I think it's just a matter of timing. And here's one thing as this roster gets better and as this team gets better and becomes more competitive for years, for 20 years, this team has had so many holes in it that we're used to just having a super flawed roster as they eliminate some of those holes we have to remember even the best teams in the league have parts of their roster that's unfinished no team has a perfect roster so if you go into a year and you have a position or two that's still kind of in flux or in question that is all 32 teams in the league are dealing with that and i think right now for the bills it's just a matter of timing who was available and i think that it just becomes the top priority for them next year like tight end is this year defensive tackle so um i think it just kicks the can down the road just a little bit unless it's like i said 
they can hit with one of these late round prospects that they can turn into the next Matt Milano. All right, so we pulled the trigger. Mike Edwards, this box complete. Last week, we had Quinn Williams, Chris Lindstrom, Miles Sanders, a running back from Penn State. He wasn't available this time around. We took Edwards, and we took Anthony Johnson from UB. This latest mock draft gave us Ed Oliver at 9, Irv Smith Jr. at 40. At 74, we got J.J. Arcago-Whiteside from Stanford, wide receiver. 112, we got David Montgomery, the running back from Iowa State. And at pick 131 in the fourth round, later than we got him last week, we got Mike Edwards, safety from Kentucky. All said and done, those are our five guys. How you thinking Bills fans are feeling about this draft? I love it, to be honest, not just because we participated in it. I think all around, it's a better draft than we had the last time. Obviously, getting Quinn and Williams would have been huge, but unrealistic. So I think it's a better value all around at all the picks this time than we got last time. And then you get in uh, Mike Edwards later than we got him. That even kind of puts a cherry on top. I think the worst part about this draft, as we saw it, was Quinton Williams going to the Jets. That makes me want to throw up a little bit. I think that could happen. If they keep that third pick, that oh, could yeah. so very well happen. Murray goes one, Bosa goes two. I would almost consider it likely that he ends up with the Jets. Oh, I hope they're dumb enough to just fall in love with Rashawn Gary, a guy that I'm not super big on, athletic freak, but I hope they fall in love with him and let Quinn just go somewhere not in our division. I hear you. All right, man. Good job. I want to do another one of these next week. Again, we only got two more before the draft. They've been pretty well received. And we always seem to find new guys and new scenarios to talk about each time we do this, which is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And if anyone hates it, I'd love to talk about that on Twitter. And you can find me over at Aaron Quinn 716. Uh, so come over and tell me how stupid I am. <laughs> and make sure you check out CoverOne.net as well. Got to throw that plug in for you. You guys yes, do great work there, man. Thanks a lot. We'll talk next week. Thanks, man. Have, I'll talk to you soon. All right, I'm joined now by Chad D. Diminisis, managing editor of Die by the Blade. What's going on, Chad? How you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? It's been a while. I know. It has been a while. I'm doing really good. I want to jump right into this with you because I didn't think that this was a conversation that we were going to have. And by the way, thanks for coming on the podcast with basically no notice. I think I might have talked to you like an hour ago. I said, hey, man, you want to jump on and talk some uh, Sabres of Phil Housley? And you were down, so appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. All right, Phil Housley gets shit-canned by the Sabres after two seasons, two very disappointing seasons, especially this year in particular. Even with the 10-game winning streak, they still end up finishing 27th in the NHL. I could read the stats forever, and most people, if you're listening to this, you already know what most of these stats are. The one that stuck out to me the most, 5-18-3 over the last 26 games, and at times it just felt like they laid down. Anyway, was this a conversation right now Phil Housley's firing just hours after the season ended that you expected to be having when based on Terry Bagula's comments recently in Arizona and Phil's own over this past weekend kind of suggested that it seemed like Phil Housley was going to be back at least to start a third season as head coach. So all that considering, are you a little bit surprised right now to be having this conversation with me? No, I mean, it's, I mean, I, I think I knew it was coming. That's not surprising by any means, but I, I think the other part, it, it was a little quick. I'll admit that it, it was pretty quick. So that's, that's maybe the surprising part uh, how quickly they move, but I, I don't think by any means at all that it's surprising. So you saw between the words, or I should say you saw through what the Pagulas were saying in Arizona, because based on that, it sure sounded like he was going to be back for a third season. And again, it sounded like Phil 
And I don't know if he had talked to someone or not, or if he was just thinking that in his own mind, but it didn't, he didn't sound like a coach going into Saturday that thought he would be getting fired 24 hours later. Did he? No, and I think the Pagulas, I think they were kind of just going off a bottle just had maybe like a month or so ago before that in Tampa Bay. I think it's kind of what they were speaking to. So kind of like trying to tow the company line there with that. But Halsey himself, again, I'm not surprised with his comments either. I mean, what's he going to say? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely getting fired tomorrow. Like, <laughs> That's you know true. I mean? it's, right. You know, I mean, he's got to keep the positive. He's got to keep the feel that he's going to be the coach next year. And that's just the way it is. So I don't think the Pagulas comments or his comments at all surprised me either one. So it's. It is what it is. The move had to be done, and now it's moving forward. I feel like the beginning of the end for Housley came after he's called his team soft. After that blowout home loss to the Rangers, I'm not sure when it was. It was a handful of weeks ago. Instead of responding angrily, the team went out. It was in New Jersey that weekend, and I think Florida after that. And they got blown out. They got blown off the ice both games after being called soft. I mean, I knew this team wasn't going to respond after that. At that point, did you pretty much know that maybe his fate, I don't want to say his fate was sealed, although you tend to lean towards not being surprised that he got fired instead of getting a third season. But did you feel like as a team that they were toast after that, that the fate of the team was sealed anyway, if not him? Yeah, I, mean, I guess you could say that. You know, I, I don't think his comments were too bad because I mean, a lot of coaches call out their teammates or call out their players. I don't think that's anything you know, that makes it worse by any means. I, I just think it, it was, I mean, early in the season, I think those things were evident for me, but especially once they started really going down in the second half of the season. I really think that, I mean, it's just every game, every week, it just progressively got worse and worse and worse to the point where there was just no, there was no return. So I wouldn't put that one comment on maybe that was stealing his fate, but I think it's just uh, all of them coming together. Terry Bagula said, now usually when a move like this is made, whether it's true or not, it's considered an organizational decision where they all come to an understanding or a decision. But in this case, Terry Bagula's statement emphasized and I'm quoting here, we support the decision made by Jason today. Again, it's one thing to speculate whether a GM or an owner is the one who ultimately made the decision, but these are direct words from the owner. So this 100% was a, a general manager decision, and Terry Bagula, of course, signed off on it. But are you surprised that, not surprised, well, yeah, are you a little bit surprised that Jason Botterill got that much power, that he got to make ultimately a decision Without really, I don't want to say he didn't consult with Pagula, but it was 100% Jason Botterill's decision and not Pagula's, and he just more or less signed off on it. No, I think that's what it should be. I was, I was impressed by that, to be honest. You know, I, I think it alleviates any narrative that the owners were involved, or that the players made some involvement or impact, the players are running the asylum. So, no, I mean, I'm fine with that. I think it's good. Uh, I mean, Botterill runs your hockey department, so let him make these decisions. You know, he made his recommendation. He thought the coach shouldn't stay, and that's fine. That's his recommendation. It is what it is, and I'm glad the, the owner let him do that, you know, and it's in a way it gives you some insurance, but I mean, I did. The owners believe, you know, that he's there for the long term, and he thinks he's another coach, so that's what they did. Yeah, I agree. If nothing else, it shows that he's not necessarily a meddling owner who's going to stick his nose in and make decisions like that. He hired a GM to make hockey decisions right. and his GM made hockey decisions. So I do respect him for that as well. I don't think the players are kicking Phil Housley on his way out the door at all. I think to a man, it seems to me, and maybe if I'm wrong, you let me know that they liked him, but they couldn't have been happy. What do you think was Phil's worst trade as a head coach? For me, it seemed, again, I'm not someone who was on the inside. I didn't watch all 82 games. I was never in the press box. I wasn't in the locker room, anything like that. I watched as much as I could. But for me, it felt like there was always so much line juggling. There was no chemistry 
on most of the lines, especially after the first line. Do you think that his inability to get the right line combinations was his worst trade as a coach? If not, what do you think it was? Yeah, I think player usage is probably the worst thing going at home back the most. You know, it's not only just the forward, just defensively too. I think all of it, you know, it just over the entire season, you know, keeping that first line together, I think is one of his worst trades. I think using wrist line in the way he did, uh, even his usage of Vladimir Saboka, while Saboka isn't a great hockey player, I think using him in the situation that he did didn't help anybody, including the player. Uh, I mean, there was some situations with middle stat. There were some situations with younger players when they came up, how he handled them. So, I think his player usage overall uh, and his inability to understand how that could negatively impact his team and not putting players in positions to succeed, you know, was ultimately what I guess led him to where he is now. I think when a team loses and covering Buffalo teams, you probably know this better than most fans. Typically they got one or two players that they're going to turn on. They always will turn on the head coach and sometimes the GM as well. Phil Housley was a Jason Botterill guy. It was his hire, his first hire. Do you feel like by getting rid of him now, that kind of puts a bullseye squarely on the back of Jason Botterill? If this team doesn't show improvement next season over last year, do you feel like this he could be next? I think this move, honestly, maybe bought him two years. I, I think if he hitches his wagon to Housley and he struggles out the gate, then I think a target is definitely on his back. I mean, it, it is now to an extent because, you know, he hires another coach and it's really on him now to build that roster. But at the very least, I mean, if you're the owner, you're not going to let this guy go and hire another coach and then fire the GM next summer. Cause then what, then what if the other GM you hired doesn't want the coach that he hired his coach and he got fired another coach. And then it's great. You know, I, I think at the very least this move at least buys bottle two years, which I think is good for him. Cause I think he ultimately has a plan for the summer, uh, not this off season, I think the next one, they have a lot of cast space. They have, um, I guess in two years is when the expansion draft is, but I, I think, you know, that 2020, I think, is when they have a lot of cap space. And I think is that's the season they really want to be their, quote-unquote, go season, where they want to push. They want to be a contender. They want to start to be, I guess, a contender in the Eastern Conference. So I think, ultimately, for this future of the franchise, it's good that you kind of have some stability there, where I think, at the very least, you have bottle lock in for two years, unless things really go off the rails next season, which... You can't say it's impossible, but you don't see that, I guess you could say. I completely agree with you. That's a great point. That was my first thought, too, when I heard Phil Housley was getting fired. Botterill's obviously going to stay. What happens if he hires a head coach and his team takes even a further nosedive next year? You get rid of Botterill and a new GM comes in and maybe he doesn't like Coach A and he wants his own coach. And right, you get exactly. that vicious cycle that just doesn't end. Anyway, what do you make of Botterill? Defending that Ryan O'Reilly trade, he said that the trade isn't really completed yet because the Sabres still have a high pick, which is true, plus a young guy in Tage Thompson. And he says cap room that allowed him to go get Jeff Skinner. Maybe I'm wrong. Technically, he's right about Thompson and the rookie pick for sure to come. But do you think it was that move that allowed them to go out and trade for Jeff Skinner? Or do you think that trade happens regardless? No, I, I think it's a move that could happen. I don't know if it happens regardless. I think it's a move that could have happened regardless. You know, it, it was really a money in, money out situation. Uh, so, I mean, a few people I talked to on Twitter, I told them maybe he was saying, like, your future salary cap at over some space, where it technically did. But, yeah, I mean, it, the trade itself is a money and money out. I, I think he was trying to defend that trade. I mean, he's going to defend that trade. He's not going to, again, it's what we talked about earlier. He's not going to come out and say, man, I got my doors blown off from that deal. Like, you know, I mean, he's going to try to defend his moves and his assets he picked up. One of those assets might turn into Brandon Montour. So, that's good. I guess you could say that first round pick does end up going to Anaheim. So, that's. At least we got something out of it. And Thompson, 
you know, as negative as I guess I am on him and worried about his future, he is only a 21-year-old forward. So maybe a new coach, maybe some better development. You could see some something out of him. But I, I ultimately, sitting here today, I don't think he's ever going to be hit that ceiling. I guess maybe a lot of people hoped he would when they first traded for him. So at the end of the day, it, it's going to be a bad trade. Thought was going to has to own that. Uh, it is what it is now. And I mean, I guess they got a gift with Berglund walking too. So technically, in the long run, you did clear clear some cap space. Thank you to Berglund going AWOL. But yeah, I, I think that that cap space comment of it uh, came off kind of bad. I mean, the draft picks part I can kind of get. And he mentioned that helped him get Skinner because you did pick up future assets in a first round pick, which made it not so bad in giving up those other future assets to get Carolina. So that part of it, I'll give him. But the salary cap part definitely didn't make a lot of sense whoever the next coach is going to be. And we'll touch on that in a second. It's no secret that the Sabres need some secondary scoring real bad. It was the biggest issue with the team this year. If not the biggest, one of the biggest for sure. They got to find a way to get scoring beyond Jack Eichel, Sam Reinhart, and Jeff Skinner. Simple as that. They got very little from their other forwards. Sherry had 14 goals. That's not good enough. Akpauso was kind of a disaster. Middlestat wasn't ready for the role in the minutes he played. Palmer's faded quickly after a hot start. Gergesons, he didn't do shit again. I could keep going on forever. Again, no matter who they get as a coach, they need to find a way. Botterell needs to find a way to get better secondary scoring on this roster. Realistically, what can he do this summer? Well, I think if you're stabbing free agency, there's some guys uh, like Jordan Wheels, not a bad guy. Brandon Tanev is another guy who could be a free agent that could be a nice bottom six pickup. Uh, we saw some good signs from Victor Olsen, but, you know, maybe he's a guy maybe you want in your top six. But that was a small window. C.J. Smith could be part of their future in the bottom six. Nylander, so it's promise, maybe a third-line winger. So there's there's some ways there. There's some savvy trades you can make. But that's kind of how it is when you build a bottom six. You're not really going to spend a lot of free agency to go do that. Right. Uh, you get to make some savvy moves, some trades, or even some low-key signings. And I think that potential is there. Uh, so I guess we'll see what he does. But... But yeah, I mean, they, they need to find secondary scoring. They need to get a second line center. There's definitely some work to, I don't care who your coach is. Uh, this roster has to be improved or you're not going to get much out of it regardless. When you look at the Sabres own free agents, not the most impressive crop. On the unrestricted side, obviously they want Jeff Skinner back. Then they got Pominville and Molson. They're both going to be gone. Restricted free agents, Gergeson, Larson, Rodriguez, McCabe, Olmark. Got to assume that they walk away from Gergeson and Larson and that they're gone. Do you agree with that? Probably at least one of the two. I can't, I cannot see them both being back. Uh, and I, I think at this point, probably both are not back. I mean, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of AHL guys too. I mean, like we talked about, you know, there's uh Smith, Daniel Regan's going to be a group. I think it's group. I always mix up with baseball. It's either group six or group five, free agent where he didn't play enough NHL games. So therefore it becomes unrestricted as opposed to restricted free agents. So they have to decide on him. So, I mean, there's, you know, some other guys, too, that they have to decide what they want to do uh, with their restricted situation. So, but specifically to Gergens and Larson, I would say probably it's very, I don't say very likely, but likely that both will not be back. Before I get you out of here, we're taping this late in the day on Monday. There's reports surfacing that Todd McClellan is reportedly the leading candidate to become Sabres head coach. Nothing I've read is even close to being set in stone and the Kings are very much in play for him as well. Right. First and foremost, let me get your take on what you, if this does happen and let's, who knows people are listening. Maybe by Tuesday, when you hear this, it's already a done deal or maybe he signs with the Kings. We have no idea as we tape this, but let's just say 
for the sake of discussion, that they do zero in on Todd McClellan and he becomes Sabres coach. What's your take on that? What are your thoughts if that were to happen? Uh, it's not a it's not a glamorous thing, that's for sure. Um, it's a veteran coach who has some winning in his experience. It, it's hard, you know. It's 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 really hard to say how one coach can go from one place to the next and what they'll do. I, I don't think he ever got a fair roster in Edmonton, so probably wants to discount that. But at the same time, there are some things that you can look at there to decide if you know maybe he is a good coach. Some people I've talked to today asking around around the league in San Jose and Edmonton, other places, you know, it's a mixed bag of some compliments and. You know, some things that alarm you. you know he likes more of those physical players in his bottom six over skill which can be concerning you know there's an article that made its rounds about him not being a big analytics guy which is a red flag for me being an, a very analytical guy but sure. i mean that, that was in 2016 with peter shirelli who's mr anti-analytics almost so maybe his view is different with a guy like Botterell who does kind of put some stock into those numbers so we'll see about that so it's like I said, it's not the most glamorous signing. I, I think we heard a little bit about him going after Bottle going after Quenville in a report uh, in the middle of the season, and then again at the end of the season, uh, there's been some talks about Elaine Vigneault maybe being a candidate too. So it seems like, while I don't agree with it as their method, I think they should have opened their options to everything and kind of did a thorough search to find the best coach here. But it seems like Bottle definitely focused on a veteran coach, and you know, if I had to pick between Elaine Vigneault and McCullough, honestly, I'm going to take McCullough, but like I said, neither really makes me run or run laps of excitement. Yeah, I was. I spent a lot of time on Twitter looking up comments from, you know, reporters would put out there that he's a candidate and I would look at certain fan reaction, not from Sabres fans, mind you. Well, Sabres fans too, let me say that. But Shark fans and Oilers fans and the sentiment on McClellan's not very high. Let's just say that amongst fans. And again, that really doesn't mean a hell of a lot. It would right. it would feel like an uninspiring hire Amongst Sabres fans anyway. And again, that doesn't mean a thing. At the end of the day, when the season starts, you know, how they play on the ice is all that really is going to matter. Last question here, and then I'm going to let you go. When you look back at this 2018-19 Sabres season and you factor in the 10-game winning streak, which, of course, you knew that they weren't going to be that good, but the way they fell off and how dramatically it happened, and at times over these last two months, how it just seemed like they laid down at least some nights, they just mail it in. They they took the night off from what I've seen anyway. And if I'm wrong, you let me know. But when you factor all that in, where does this rank among your biggest disappointing seasons when it comes to the Sabres? Pretty highly. I mean, I, I thought it couldn't get worse than last season. And I think this season might've accomplished that. You know, this season was uh, exhausting to be to be honest, covering the team. You know, I've been covering the team for six years now and they really haven't been good in six years. Maybe I'm the bad luck guy, but yeah. you know, every year, every year it kind of feels like, you know, it, it can't get, I mean, how much worse can it be next season? Every season, every next season is somehow worse. So it's, I, I don't know. I mean, you feel like, and there's a joke around the end of the season, like where have the Sabres finally, is this finally rock bottom? Like, are we finally there now? And it's, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's, it, again, I can't be saying this every year. It's harder to be worse than you were this year or whatever in the past year or the year before that. So I don't know. I, I want to say, hopefully, this is it, and we start to trend up the right direction. I mean, they got some pieces. They got some players. Uh, they're going to get another high pick here. We're going to find out if it's going to be a top two pick or top three pick or somewhere in you know the five to eight range. We're going to find out here in the next 24 to 48 hours. So um, that'll be good. That'll be exciting to see how that goes. But at the very least, we're going to get another good player and add that into the prospect pool and kind of see where that leads them. But you know, I, I think the conversation we've had a lot around here is future. And I think 
you know, starting to move forward, we kind of have to start to look in the now. We got to start winning now, start being a competitive team now. And it's time to abandon that, you know, well, look at our prospects or young players that are coming up. I, I think it's, it's time to get away from that and start trying to be a team that is going to participate in this league now and not worry about three, four years on the road. By the way, caught you last week on the Tim Graham show. In fact, you were in studio with Tim on his show. How was that experience for you? Was that a good time? Yeah, it was good. It was fun. Tim's a good guy. You know, so that was my first like in-studio radio experience. So it was a good time. It was a good experience. It was fun. Uh, it was a good conversation. And, you know, Tim, Tim's a great guy. So I enjoyed myself. All right, podcast people, go follow Chad on Twitter at CM Demonisis. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, of course. Also, go check out DieByTheBlade.com for all your waterwall daily Buffalo Sabres coverage. Thanks a lot, my man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, not a problem. Anytime. You just made the list. Barack Leinster! Michael Cole, shut up! The house that AJ Styles built! Who wants to walk with the lion? This is my yard now. So WrestleMania 35 is in the books. I thought it was one of the more epic WrestleManias that I can remember. My only real problem with the show is that it's just too goddamn long, man. Seven and a half hours. I think it was like seven hours and 38 minutes to be exact. Something like that. It's just way too long. Whether it's cutting down matches in the future, having shorter match times, maybe having it over two days. I don't know. That's another topic for another time. But the show's too long. And I don't care what your investment is in the product. I don't care if you're emotionally invested in it and you're watching every Raw, every SmackDown, every NXT main event, all that stuff. I don't care what your financial commitment is to it, whether it's spending $10 on the network each month to watch it, or whether you're spending a ton of money to go to MetLife Stadium and watch it in the crowd. It's just too freaking long. And by the way, Joe, who I usually do the Running With Joe segment with on our Friday episodes, he was actually one of those 82,000 people in the crowd. Looking forward to doing our segment this week. Not going to run down the matches with him because I'm going to be doing that for you momentarily here. But I'm just interested in getting his overall perspective of what it was like to be in that crowd for the show. Was it too long for him? He also went to WWE Access on Friday. I saw some cool videos and, and photographs. That looked like it was a lot of fun. He did some indie shows as well. Took advantage of his time like a lot of fans do. It's not just about WrestleMania. It's about everything that's going on around that time. So I'm looking forward to doing that with him on Friday. Saw nine titles get defended. Seven of them saw title changes. Lots of feel-good moments. I don't want to say it was a shocking WrestleMania, so to speak. It wasn't a lot of, oh my God, what a shock, that kind of thing. It was just really steady and... Left you feeling good. Everything, again, about the show I enjoyed, except for it being too freaking long. So let's get to the show. I'm going to run down the matches. Some of them I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about because, frankly, I don't think it was worth spending a lot of time talking about. You had four matches on the pre-show. Tony Nese kicked things off, defeating Buddy Murphy to win the Cruiserweight title. All right, that's cool. I don't really have any investment in the cruiserweight division, so I really don't care. It was a fun match, so I liked it. Carmelo wins the women's battle royal, 
eliminating Sarah Logan. I thought that was really stupid. I don't understand that booking at all. Why not use the women? If you're not going to have Asuka win it, why not have somebody who I feel like is ready for some sort of elevation? Sarah Logan, who thought she won it, she would have been perfect. Maybe she breaks away a little bit from the Riot Squad, starts to get a little more wrestling cred on her own. Sonya Deville was in the final three. She would have been a nice story winning it. Maybe it creates a nice jealous angle with Mandy Rose going forward. Maybe they still do that anyway. I don't know. Regardless, Carmella's already been the women's champ. She's already won money in the bank. She does the stupid sidekick to our true seven-second dance break. I just don't get it. It felt lazy to me. Lazy booking, nothing more than time filler. That's all I felt about the women's World Rumble. Kurt Hawkins and Zack Ryder defeat the Revival to win the Raw Tag Team titles. That was also on the pre-show. Kurt Hawkins ends a 269-match losing streak. Look, it's a fun moment. No question about it. I marked out a little bit. I just don't get it when it comes to the Revival. Everyone praises this as this team as one of the best in the world. Bret Hart did it during the Hall of Fame speech on Saturday night. Then they go on and they lose. How serious can you take them when they lose to Zack Ryder or Kurt Hawkins? And I think they might have lost more. Obviously, there were non-title matches because they've been champions for a little bit now. I think they've lost more than they've won on Raw over the last couple months. I just don't understand what they're doing with them. If you're going to be one of the best tag teams in the world, don't you think they should win? I don't expect Hawkins and Ryder to keep the belts wrong or for long, I should say. In fact, I'm taping this Monday before Raw. Who knows? By the time you hear this on Tuesday, maybe the Revival has a rematch and they win the belts back already or someone else beats them. They're not going to keep the belts for long. It was a nice moment. I just don't like that it comes at the expense of the Revival, who I'm finding it increasingly harder to take serious, even though they're really good wrestlers. Last match of the pre-show, Braun Strowman wins the Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal. That's fine. No surprise there. I guess you got to get him over, and that was the only way he was going to do it on this show. Eliminating Colin Joss is fine. Only thing, and I get it, it's, it's a gimmick match, so you should expect gimmick booking. What are half the wrestlers out there doing still long after they're eliminated out there to catch Colin Joss from his fall when Braun throws him out? Everything about that just fell short, but whatever. That's not surprising. I wasn't expecting much to begin with. If they weren't going to have a surprise entrant in the Royal Rumble to maybe challenge Braun, if not win it. Actually, they did. Luke Harper, he returned. No music for him. He got eliminated. He, he should have been. Maybe he should have been in the final two. That would have been more interesting. Anyway, didn't move the needle for me. Braun Strowman wins. That's fine. The real show starts. Right off the bat, we get explosion, fireworks. Wow. Alexa Bliss comes out, brings out Hulk. That's all great. Paul Heyman struts right between them, goes to the ring, calls out Seth Rollins. It says, if they can't go on first or last, let's go right now. Seth comes out. Brock attacks him, beats the shit out of him all over the place. Didn't even think the match was going to start. I'm like, well, is that the angle here? Brock's going to keep the belt because this becomes a no contest, not even a match. It's an F5 on him outside of the ring. The bell does ring. Eventually, Seth hits him with the low blow. Three curb stomps. Bam. New champion. I'm good with it. That's the way you got to beat Brock. You can't beat him over a long match. It's got to be quick. It's got to be sudden. You hit something on him. Bam, bam, bam. Finisher. That's the way to beat him. I loved it. I thought it was a great start to the show. Kind of shocking because if there was one major title title match of the three that we thought the bad guy would win, it would have been Brock retaining and maybe he loses it down the road, but they decided not to do that. Seth's the champion. I love it. I got no problem with that whatsoever. Next up, AJ Styles beats Randy Orton. Good match. I'll tell you what. 
Randy Orton has a tendency if he's not, I mean, he's a 13-time champion. If he's not in one of the main matches, sometimes it looks like he might mail it in a little bit, but this wasn't the case at all. I thought it was a really good match. AJ Styles winning, I think, is the right call. Gives him a little bit of that momentum back after losing the belt to Daniel Bryan a few months ago. Orton, it doesn't hurt him whatsoever. He's won so many big matches. Losing AJ Styles, that's fine. So I'm cool with that. Lacey Evans comes out, walks around. No match for her. Are we supposed to forget that she was in the Royal Rumble, that she did a promo and wrestled before? Are we just supposed to forget about that, or is she just going to walk around forever? Next up, Usos retain the SmackDown Tag Team titles in a, in a fatal four-way. I thought this was a really good match. Lots of good spots. Aleister Black and especially Ricochet, they were amazing. I thought the bar was really good. Rusev and Nakamura, well, they were out there. Solid match, man. Really good spots. I think it was as good as you can realistically hope for. And I really like Ricochet, man. I think this guy's destined for stardom. I really do. Shane McMahon and The Miz are up next. Much better match than I anticipated. I thought this was going to be a slowdown, bleh, walking around the arena doing bullshit, but they were actually really entertaining. Shane McMahon ends up winning after The Miz superplexed him from a camera platform. It was got to be 15, 20 feet high. Awesome spot. You expect that from Shane. His crazy ass always does shit like that. But the Miz stepped up to the plate too, man. His dad being in the ring, holding his fist up awkwardly. That's already an internet meme sensation. Much better match than I expected for sure. You had, this was probably, if there was a stunner for me personally for the night, I would have bet my life that Sasha Banks and Bailey would have kept the, the women's tag team titles. But they lost. And it wasn't the Beth Phoenix or Natty, and it wasn't the Nia Jax or Tamina Snuka. It was for the Iconics. The Iconics are the new women's tag team title. I love it. It was a complete stunner, one that I'm totally on board with. I don't know how long they're going to keep the belts. I really don't give a shit. What a great WrestleMania moment, an unexpected one. I don't know what they do with Sasha Banks and Bailey from here. Do they win the belts back? Do they go their own separate ways? I don't know, but regardless, I really like the Iconics winning the belts, and I totally did not see that coming at all. The highlight of the show, Kofi Kingston, Daniel Bryan. I mean, that's what we're here for, right? That was incredible. You know, so many times in WWE over the last couple of years, especially recently, probably more than ever, some of the storylines are just dumb. They take a good story and they make it dumb. Like, for an example... Though the women, Ronda Rousey and Becky Lynch and Charlotte, I, I felt like they, they came back, by the way, a week or two before WrestleMania. But there was a period where they didn't need to do anything more for that match. It was already there. And all the layers that they added, the social media stuff, it kind of convoluted it to the point where I was starting to lose interest in it. Complete opposite with Kofi Kingston and Daniel Bryan. It never lost momentum. I got more invested each week because I felt like the storytelling was perfect. Absolutely perfect. And the payoff was phenomenal. It's at WrestleMania. Crowd was into it by far more than any other match. Kofi Kingston was over by far more than anyone else. They didn't screw around. They didn't dick us around. They gave us a moment that we all wanted. And that was Kofi Kingston finally beating Daniel Bryan. And after 11 years, winning the WWE Championship. The New Day rushing the ring within less than two seconds to celebrate and start crying was awesome. The wrestlers backstage celebrating, that was awesome. The crowd shots were awesome. Every fucking thing about this match was awesome. Only one thing I hate about this, and it's got nothing to do on WWE whatsoever. 
Ryan Sadden from the pro wrestling sheet is an asshole. Okay. If you happen to be on Twitter and you follow him, there's a good chance this match got spoiled for you during the match, which happened to me. As invested as I was and pumped as I was, uncertain as I was, I kind of knew that Kofi Kingston was going to win before it happened because Ryan Sadden is a piece of shit fucking asshole. What happened was, and this is WWE's mistake, don't get me wrong. If you went to WWEshop.com and typed in New Day, their new shirts were out with Kofi Kingston as champion before the match was even over. That's a mistake. No doubt about it. But Ryan Sadden, he tweeted it out. He put spoiler warning at the top of his tweet. And before you could even look away, he's got a photograph, bright as could be, with the shirt. So you knew what was going on. That's just a piece of shit move. You ain't Adam Schefter. This ain't ESPN. You're not breaking an NFL story. This is sports entertainment. It's scripted. And let fans who follow you for news and views and rumors and stuff like that, that's what they follow you for. Not to get a fucking the, the match that they've waited forever to see spoiled during the middle of the match because you're a dickhead and an asshole. I'm going to have, by the way, maybe I'll do it on Friday. I'm going to have a whole complete diatribe on that. I can have a whole segment talking about people like Ryan Sadden, but I'm going to save that. For another time, and I want I want to get back to what I'm doing here. But just know that if you follow Ryan Sadden on Twitter, tweet at him and let him know that he's a fucking douchebag for what he did. Dave Meltzer as well, by the way. Again, we'll talk about that another time. Back to the show. Next up was Samoa Joe defeated Rey Mysterio in like literally a minute by submission, put him to sleep. That had to go quick. Rey Mysterio's ankle was bad. Plus. Again, too many matches. This was already too long, so there had to be a match that went real quick, and they decided it would be this one. I'm good with that. Next up, Roman Reigns. Pretty clean win over Drew McIntyre. Beats him with despair. The funny thing about this match is the crowd. They were confused, and granted, they were coming off the high of Kofi Kingston and also Samoa Joe winning in like a minute, but the crowd was really confused here because it felt to me like they really wanted to boo Roman Reigns to hell like they have been for the last couple of years, but doing so, they knew that it would be fucked up, man. I mean, the guy's coming back from leukemia, making his triumphant return to WrestleMania against all odds. Some people thought this might never happen again. So it felt like kind of a dick move to boo him. So fans didn't do that, but they weren't very supportive and loud for him either, at least from what I gathered watching it on TV. I don't think, I think the Roman Reigns love affair is coming to an end pretty soon, really soon, in fact. As for Drew McIntyre, you know, usually I don't like 50-50 booking. In fact, it's quite annoying. But this is one case where I think they need it. Roman Reigns got his big WrestleMania moment, and he absolutely deserves it after everything he's went through. But you can't just have Drew McIntyre lose to him and, and be done with it. I think you got to have a rematch where Drew wins. That elevates him right back up into that elite status of, of Monday Night Raw while well, they're going to be having a draft. So wherever he's going to be, he needs to be in that upper echelon. And being a Roman Reigns in a rematch will definitely do that for him especially if I could see him in the future challenging Seth Rollins for the title. You can't lose clean to Roman Reigns and then come out next week and say, I want the title. I want to beat Seth Rollins. You got to earn it. So I'd have him go over Roman Reigns in a rematch. Next up, Elias comes out, which I'll tell you what, I didn't expect much from this. After the Iconics, I would probably say this was probably my second biggest pleasant surprise of the evening. He's got the piano. And the drum of himself pre-videotaped, they play simultaneously together. That was pretty cool. I half expected John Cena to come out, especially after Samoa Joe wrestled Rey Mysterio, for sure. And Cena comes out. And they're like, oh, all right, cool. But it's not 
It's not 2019 John Cena. It's 2002 John Cena. Word life with Thugonomics across the screen. He comes out with his Yankee jersey on and a battle rap. Coming out rapping. And instead of hitting the attitude adjustment, he hits the FU. Everything about that was really cool. It got the fans really behind Cena. Nice twist. Didn't expect it. Like that a lot. That was really well done. We had Triple H and Batista after that. Look, Batista, by the way, retired on Monday officially. He had a great career. I give him a lot of credit. I like Batista. He's just, he can't do it anymore. I mean, it wasn't, this, listen, this wasn't a good match. There's no way around it. It was way too long. Too many blown spots. I mean, hell, Batista pretty much blew his entrance getting into the ring. He almost fell over his own feet. And I'm sure being nervous had a lot to do with it. He hasn't wrestled in a big match like this in a very long time. You got to have understanding for that. And I do. It's just too long. This was an energy sucker. It was a 25-minute match that should have been 12, 13 minutes at the absolute most. Flair comes out, gives Triple H the sledgehammer, hits him. There you go. The, the, the Mad Max entrance to by Triple H, that fell flat for me compared to things he's done in the past. I just, again, I get it. Batista, to his credit, he wanted to have one more match. He wanted to put Triple H over. I get that. It was cool. The match just fell real flat. And speaking of falling flat, after that, we had Baron Corbin defeating Kurt Angle clean in the middle of the ring. I, they did the whole shots of the crowd being stunned for effect. I get that. If they're going to go this route, and I, by the way, Kurt Angle going out like this, that's the traditional way to do it. I'm cool with that. The saying is you always go out looking up at the lights, meaning you put the next guy over. But is Baron Corbin really getting put over here or is he just getting a one night win? Are they going to do something with him? He's already hated. He has that heel heat already. But is he going to start winning more important matches or is he going to be losing the Lucha Party on Raw three weeks from now? I don't know. Second last match, Finn Balor. I should say Demon Finn Balor defeats Bobby Lashley to win the Intercontinental belt. I don't care if he's a Demon or Finn or not. I've seen this match 20 times already this year. It did nothing for me. I think the crowd barely even cared because they knew the main event was coming. And again, seven and a fucking half hours long is just, it's way too long for any wrestling show. The crowd was not into the match at all. Alexa Bliss comes out, announces over 82,000 in attendance. R-Truth and Carmella come out for the seven second dance break. I mean, really, do they need to fill any more time on this card? Seriously? Finally, you do get to the main event, which Charlotte comes from the helicopter. I don't know if everyone knows this or not, but she was doing, there was a reason for that. She was entering the arena just like her father did at Bash in the Beach all the way back in like 1986, which I thought was pretty fucking sweet, man. Ronda Rousey, of course, comes out while Joan Jett's playing her music. Kind of funny moment. It looked like Ronda wanted to go up to her and hug her for a brief second before she got that snarl on her face and started marching towards the ring. Becky Lynch doesn't have anything special and exclusive in terms of her WrestleMania entrance. But who gives a shit, man? She got the whole crowd behind her. I guess that's what really matters, isn't it? Listen, let me start here, okay? There's no getting around it. It was a horrible finish. It was semi. It had to have been at least semi-botched. Ronda Rousey's shoulders were clearly up when the count started. The ref should not have started the count. If he would have been in a better position, maybe he waits and starts the count, and then she still gets a clean three, and maybe it's a little bit different. But you could see that her shoulder clearly was up. The crowd was clearly confused, and that sucks because this was a moment that we waited a long time to get to. Whether Becky beat Charlotte or Ronda, whether it was a submission, a pinfall, 
whatever. We waited a long time for this moment and it was confusing. We didn't know if it was an actual three count. Everything about the actual finish sucked. There's no getting around it. It was very anticlimactic. The match itself was not that it wasn't perfect. Not even close to it. I think years from now, all three wrestlers will say that in interviews. They'll be like, the match itself wasn't our best. I've seen all three of them have far better matches than they had at WrestleMania on Sunday. But that being said, man, there's lots of factors, okay? Don't discount the significance of this match. I'm sure there were a lot of nerves. They were trying to be perfect. They were making history, literally making wrestling history. This had never, ever been done. You always hear first time this, first. This legitimately was the first time ever a women's main event. Lots and lots and lots of nerves, I'm sure. And the match wasn't bad. It was pretty good. It wasn't perfect, but it was good. The ending sucks. I don't know where they go from here. The one thing I would like to say, I hope Ronda Rousey, I get why people got behind Becky Lynch. That's cool. I got behind her too. But I really hope people take a step back and really respect and understand how much Ronda Rousey has meant to the WWE in this last year. Just one year. She's one of the best wrestlers in the company. Legit best wrestlers in the company right now. And she's done that in one year. She's brought so much mainstream to the women's division. Without Ronda Rousey, this is not the main event. If it's Becky against Charlotte one-on-one, that's not, it, it'd be a big match, but it wouldn't be the main event. The main event was the main event because of Ronda Rousey. Let's not kid ourselves here. Without Ronda, this isn't a main event. It's a big match, but it's not the main event. I really hope as time goes on, people really truly grasp and understand that. I get why Becky Lynch was the fan favorite. I love Becky Lynch as well, but Ronda Rousey was the game changer. She really was. She made this so much more mainstream than it would have been without her. That can't be understated. She, her contributions in this last year to the WWE have been phenomenal. And again, I'm taping this on Monday. I don't know how Raw is going to play out on Monday night, but whether she continues to wrestle, whether she goes away to start a family for a year, two years, forever, I have no idea. When you look back at this historic WrestleMania, Ronda Rousey deserves a lot, and I do mean a lot of credit, because it does not happen without Ronda Rousey. All in all, I thought it was a really good WrestleMania, lots of good matches, some pretty good twists. John Cena rapping was pretty cool. The Iconics winning the tag team titles, totally did not see that coming. And I'll tell you right now, Kofi Kingston winning the WWE Championship. When you go back and look at all 35 WrestleManias, to me anyway, that is very easily a top five moment in WrestleMania history. The one problem is the time. You got to find a way to make it shorter, just like I need to find a way to make these WrestleMania reviews shorter. But on all seriousness, Find a way to make it shorter. And if you do that, everything else about this WrestleMania to me was almost perfect. All right, that is going to do it for today's episode. Thanks to my man, Aaron Quinn. I typically have him on Tuesday episodes. He just knows his shit, man. I love, he makes my job a lot easier when it comes to the Buffalo Bills and the NFL. I just tee up stuff and let him run with it giving you an education out there. Draft fans, he knows his shit. Our Bills mock draft, definitely something you want to listen to, not just the players that we took, 
some of the players that we didn't take, some of the scenarios, how they may play out. Really good stuff as always with Aaron. Thanks as well to my man, Chad D. Dominicis from Die by the Blade. I'll tell you, when Phil Housley got fired, when that news went down on Sunday, I immediately said, I got to get Chad on the show again. He's been on the podcast before. I wanted to talk to him about it, get his thoughts on Phil, Jason Botterill, the roster, all that stuff. He's one of the best bloggers out there. And I really like the fact that the mainstream media has really started to pay attention to the great work that he does over at Die by the Blade. Coming up on Friday's show, not going to say who it is, but as of right now, I'm scheduled to have a former Buffalo Bill on this show, former first round pick that pretty much fans rarely hear from anymore. I'm really excited to bring you that interview again. I'm going to kind of tease it a little bit, throw it out there now, give you something to look forward to on Friday. In the meantime, if you have not yet already done so, I invite you to subscribe to this podcast. It's quick, easy, free. You subscribe, new episodes automatically get sent directly to your phone, your laptop, your desktop, your Android, your iPad, whatever the hell it is you're using. It gets sent literally just within seconds after it's released. That is always the biggest benefit of subscribing to the podcast. You're going to get it before anyone else does. Have a new show every Tuesday, every Friday. Don't forget to take a second and rate and review. I said it at the top. I'm going to say it again. It really helps me grow this podcast tremendously. You can catch us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, blah, 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 blah. Pretty much anywhere that future award-winning podcasts are found. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Pamoran Tweets. You can hit like on the Moranalytics Podcast Facebook page if you want. All kinds of stuff going on, asking you to do a lot. At the end of the day, I really, truly appreciate each and every single one of you who are listening to this podcast. It means the world to me. So thanks again. And I'll be back with a new episode on Friday. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.